Hey, Tom D'Antoni back at World Cup Coffee and Tea at Northwest 18th and Gleason for another OMN Coffee Shop Conversation. Today, it's a man who is known for his thoughtful singing and songwriting. He is known as Worth, although he has the first name, and it's Christopher. We first met him when he was a member of a band called Naya, N-I-A-Y-H. Now is all you have. He moved on to a solo career. Last November, he released number three in a trilogy of albums, this one called Pardon Me. I'm holding a vinyl version of that right now. He's got quite a following, and he has a lot to say. So, why don't we let him say it? Meet Worth. Christopher, welcome to the cupping room. Hello. That's where we are <laughs> at the World Cup Coffee and Tea, our benefactors here at the uh, Coffee Shop Conversations. Uh, glad you could make it. Very glad to be here, sir. I, I was that that that, that was a, I was waiting for a response. I was hoping. I know. I was waiting. I was hoping We're, I would get a response. I'm dancing with you. I'm still well, figuring you it out. You never know. You just never know. Um, it's, it is bizarre doing the podcast interview with live microphones through no PA. I must say. So this is a new. Engagement, engagement. Well, you can't tactic. say that anymore. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, um, I was thinking about the first time we met. <laughs> the thing is, I went back and all of my old portable hard drives and everything, and I can't find the story. And it's not online because or, or, the Oregonian wasn't putting stuff up I online. I have the story. Do you? I have it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> The one with, you mean that you have a real I'm pretty paper sure, copy? Yeah, <laughs> I actually do. That's great. Um, I don't remember the first moment we met. I remember funny <laughs> moments, distinct moments yeah. around that time. Well, of course, we would never have met had it not been for Lisa Lapine. I know, I know. Yeah. I do we, miss Lisa. She's miss, on my mind often. Yes, yeah, yeah. Very special. Also interesting to that when someone goes there, the presence of their spirit becomes much more distinct and solidified in some sense, like carrying into because it has to be carried on. Yeah. You know, and yeah, yeah. I miss her a lot, but also I can almost sense, I, I'm almost more, I feel more personally uh, touched now that she's gone, like, wow, I, this, this part of what she did can't go. I got to help with that. Yeah. You know, yeah, and then yeah. to see other people that, that feel the same way. Yeah. Cool. And she had a great knack. Of putting the right writer on the right band. Mm-hmm. And she knew my past. <laughs> and she sent me to a bunch of hippies. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I think the, the hippie term was a little bit misused there. I know. I don't care. <laughs> no, I don't care either. Yeah. But just, just no. for fun. Yeah. Well, you, you guys called yourself all kinds of things. You called yourself a psychedelic it rhythm was, and blues band. Yeah, but that was kind of true. I mean, there was... Well, yeah. Every band has to go through an identity crisis to find their identity, uh-huh. you know? And we're talking about Naya. Yeah, we're yeah. Still talking about that one, you know? Yeah. And I think that's kind of a... There's a beautiful, like, breakdown that has to happen to really be like, okay, what are the pieces that we give uh-huh. Give an F about. Can I swear on this? I'm not yes, swear. of course. Okay, I don't want to. No FCC looking over our shoulders. You. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it was fun to know you at that time, and that was, of course, you know, 
you get you have many bands as you as you go ahead and you know making a band's a hard a hard thing and yeah. there's humps you got to get through in that yeah. process but in fact, it was just so funny because I felt really comfortable with all you guys even though I don't know there was at least a 25 year difference between yeah. in, our, in, in ages yeah but it just felt really comfortable because I had been in that position yeah yeah you know you've literally been in that position though yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, it's got to be weird to see like the revival, like having been in the first area of uh, era of when like the term hippie was being used, and then yeah. to see a bunch yeah. of bands like the the revival of the school bus. Right. Yeah. You know? Right. It was great. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and you actually did play R and B. Yeah, we did. I mean, I yeah. think that that band, you know, in retrospect, like a lot of those ingredients could have been honed in tighter on what the mission was. Yeah, there was yeah. it was kind of stuck between are we an R and B band or is this yeah. like rock and roll? Like, I think you were early. I think you were a little too early with I that. I think we might have been. Because now, know. I mean, soul is huge. Yeah, it hadn't, it, was, it hadn't really hit back. That was what was that? Two thousand five? No, we started in two thousand eight. Eight, okay. And then like had a three year run. Yeah. Two thousand seven conceptually, and then two thousand eight, two thousand eleven, like hit it hard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was a good band. I mean, I wish that band could have, you know, held it together. I mean, everything has its purpose, you know, and all the uh -huh. musicians have evolved to new places. But it gets me wondering how much awesome music was almost made or made and didn't come out. Like, <laughs> yeah. literally, like, because some yeah. of it happens right near that place of explosion and destruction and chaos. Yeah. And um, mm. I wonder how many bands, you know, almost put out that piece of genius work but just... Yeah. Because you kind of do face your your own destruction if you're really going into an, an epic piece of work. Because it, it defines you and it and it, yeah. de it deconstructs you and yeah. it has to, otherwise it has no gravity. Right. You know. So. But the bus also defined you. Defined it was. You guys. Yeah, it did. That bus was. Yeah. He's referring to um, a 42 foot 19 mid 1970s Bluebird we had, um, which would probably could have afforded a better bus but at the time it made sense we found it and put a lot of work into it again called wally called wally yeah again, why is it, it called wally i don't know um <laughs> i don't know well in my, retrospect we could have i mean it was just a money pit like it was insane of course but it didn't yeah. but it also didn't break down that often it was incredibly reliable and it had magic powers ah uh, what so kind? it's a 42 foot rig what kind of with magic a 15 powers? foot trailer on the back right so yes. one that's not how semis work. The front parts short, the back parts long, because you can turn. So yeah, the, amount, yeah. the situations you can get into with a bus like that, where you can't get out of, are crazy. And the things in the trailer are worth your whole life savings. So we had eight bunks on the bus. It's all constructed out of wood. You know, if we were in a horrible accident, it would have been, you know, the regulations on what an RV was were much lower. So all these schoolies were getting... You know, insurance as RVs when they were kind of home constructed, and if there had been an accident, which there nearly was at least one time, um, you know, everyone's not in a good place. It just yeah. had magic powers. It had it would get us into weird situations, um, pull us through. Like, just this is an example. The one that comes to mind, and there are more. Are we took that rig to New York City? Okay, downtown Manhattan with Man. a sixty-foot bus that's black that says "Now is all you have on it." With those crazy kids in the bus, I was by far the most most like normal appearing one. And we stayed in down. We just got there. We're like, we got a gig. We got to get there. We had a gig one night and then a day off and another gig there. And we're like, we don't know where we're staying. We don't know where we're parking. 
<laughs> but we're doing this. So we were opening for the Mars Volta drummers, other projects. Wow. I can't remember what it was, like the Mercury uh-huh. Lounge in New York. Yeah. And so we play the gig, and it's fun. And we get to the bus, and we're like, we kind of like parked it in a bus lane. Uh-huh. And no one seems to notice. So we're like, I guess we'll just stay here. And so we stayed that night and no one said anything. We're just parked on the side of the road in Manhattan with a 60 foot rig sleeping on it. And the next day, like no one says anything. We're just kind of like, I guess we'll just sort of, let's just see how long this will last. I mean, we have a gig tomorrow. If we just get through tonight. So we just stayed there and we had a hub right around the corner from the venue, sleeping in our bus on the side of the road in Manhattan. And, um, the next, the third day, uh-huh people started sniffing around but we'd have like this round of people kind of pretending to carry whenever like a police officer or some other public official would near the bus yeah we'd have a, an assigned task of some of some member of the bus carrying a gas tank as if we were refueling <laughs> at some point we knew they'd catch on to us but the police ended up stopping we're like all right here we go we're gonna get in, we're gonna get in trouble now yeah. and they were just some really down-to-earth um New York cops and we were we just we kind of went into engine talk with them, you know. Like, we, we got a bubble, we got a bubble in there. We got a prime lift pump. And we got these mechanical issues. I can't remember what it was. And the guys were like, "Oh, mechanical issues, yeah. You guys are cool. You're good. You're good." And we stay there, and then on the way to the last gig, this is night three in Manhattan with the bus with eight people. We're like, "Well, we got to do some rounds through Times Square." So we, got, we go through Times Square, and the driver has one of those stupid horse head masks on oh, before geez. that became super ubiquitous. <laughs> and meanwhile, the bus itself has a foghorn on it that was jerry-rigged by our mechanic in Oregon on a bike chain to the air pump system of the brakes. So you're going through men downtown, and I mean, this thing was deafening. Like, like it, it was probably illegal. I can't imagine how it's not yeah, illegal, yeah. because if you heard it and weren't paying attention, you would just crash your car. It was so loud. So we're going down downtown through Times Square by MTV, just blasting this thing with a horse head and all these crazy, like, weird... People playing these kind of wild rock and roll shows. We should, then we go through like six times through Times Square and pull up to the next venue to get ready to play. Uh-huh. And we literally pull up and there's six parking spots open in a row and pull the bus in with the trailer, park the bus, play the gig, and leave town. And just got through and you're like, how is this? This is not... That's not going to happen. Like, no one's like, oh, I'm going to take my, my tour bus to Manhattan <laughs> yeah. with no authorization, looking like a junkie tour bus, too. I mean, <laughs> out with all due respect to Wally, it, didn't, it wasn't, like, glossy, you know? It's amazing, like, how much money we spent on it for how, like, not, good, not like, good it looked. We could have done a better job, I think. But that's just one story. I really missed that bus after the band... Uh, ended i was just like paying for it to get stored and it was just like oh. money and, I, and i'm you know yeah. surviving on music and so after year several years i was just like i have to just i need this to be over this is to be over and i took it to like the scrap yard i got oh. towed there oh. to get scrapped because oh. they were going to pay like 2500 bucks for it which is what i paid yeah. for it yeah and I got it there, and they short me by about two thirds because they knew I towed it there, and I didn't have any money. I'm like, oh, this is my last AAA tow, and I already like, convinced the guy. He's like, I'm not supposed to tow this bus. Like, you just tow the bus, please. <laughs> Get me out of the situation. Um, and in retrospect, like that's probably the only thing I regret because that whole that bus had a distinct personality. Mm-hmm. There were imperfections. And it's build, but it just, it really kept us safe. We went on a lot. I mean, that first tour, we went on the road eight months. And we all lived in the bus. Everyone just hopped in and left their lives. And we didn't have a bathroom on the bus. You know, the, and 
we were just booking our own. I mean, it, it, I, I wouldn't do it again now, but I can't believe we like made it through. Yeah. Yeah. And those are such defining times of just like, you got to be hungry and you got to be willing to just do it. And then it, it, the music kind of takes care of you. If, you're, if you don't throw yourself all the way in, I don't feel like you get the same um, vitality back or mm-hmm. something about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know all the rules, but I know that for me. That was a good era. It was nice to meet you during yeah. that era. Yeah. Um, and Lisa Lupine also, that's when I met her. And yeah. She came into that. It was it was cool. I still I still work and know with I still know many of those folks and uh, work with some of them on different musical projects. Have you kept up with the with the band members? Yeah, Kenton, the guitar player, uh-huh. was on my second record. Uh-huh. He's a genius musician. I haven't spoken to him for a little while. We had a little falling out. I should probably call him. It's nothing important. Uh, the drummer is do- uh, he produced my first CD with me. Uh-huh. We worked on another side project, and I just finished a new project with him. It's like a indie electronic hybrid Spanish English project. <laughs> it's really cool. It's called Sabio, which means sage in Spanish. I'll, I'll show you that later. That's di- very different. He's in town. He's a really great producer. He's working on March Fourth record now. Uh-huh. Just a, another uh, musician I have uh, infinite respect for. And then Adolfo, the bass player has his band Mil Fuegos mm-hmm. and he also is a real estate agent too so everyone's still there you know and I see some of the other people that were traveling with us as well or live in LA and another one of them actually opened up Catfish Blues the blues bar oh yeah <laughs> which one Shay his mom his mom is the owner wow and Shay just came on board Shay was one of our drivers huh. And was the one who was driving when we almost got into our serious accident. Oh. Which we didn't, thank God. Jeez. Yeah. Anyway, so Wally, I guess it's sort of appropriate that it disappeared. It just would have been perfect to, like, if and when I owned any land, to just park it there. Like, And turn it into just a little lounge, because it was just, like, the stories, the insanity of that. Like, all of those people were such distinctly powerful people on their own that there was just a and and from such varied backgrounds that there was nothing quite like I haven't experienced anything quite like being in the presence of those people the band was a mess in a lot of ways like (laughs) it was way too loud just way too loud (laughs) and just trying too hard but all the ingredients were very good and like this kind of had an identity crisis I think and I you know, there's a lot of faults there, but I feel like that band we almost got to like, yeah, to the the lat the new songs we had were like, okay, this is this is really good. Like uh, we all this uh-huh. the, the the differences have fused. I think it was too much my band at the beginning because mm-hmm. I was kind of funding the first record and I was the greenest musician at that time. Like <laughs> there were my earlier songs and then, yeah. you know, I was trying to control it a little too much because I was funding it and these other people had been around a lot longer playing music. I mean, it was fine but it's just hard you know the ownership thing yeah with yeah. the money thing can just complicate it so the first record we did you know i don't think really represents any of us and the band almost destructed because we went on tour with that we just hit it hard and kind of didn't let it grow organically enough from yeah. the beginning yeah just tried to like you know it's, you got to get out there and grab it just get going get the record done book yeah. the tour just hit yeah. it and it's like there's also this other pace of like the plants grow on their own yeah and just, yeah. just tend the garden uh-huh. and get it going on, uh-huh. you know? So yeah. I think we, like, really went balls in pretty hard. And there were some yeah. beautiful, beautiful uh-huh. um, gifts from that, too. So yeah. 
We don't have it online. That's actually my next thing to do is to like make sure that because when the band ended, everyone's just like, "Ugh, God, get me out of here!" Like, oh, ugh, yeah, like, yeah, please, yeah. it's over. Like so many talks and huh. fights and stuff. Right. Um, but we had this EP we recorded after our first record that we just did ourselves and doesn't sound that good. wasn't recorded that well. But I mean, David, the guy who produced my first record with me, um, he kind of mixed that a lot himself and did quite a good job. It's it's actually really cool. And uh, that's I'm gonna put that up soon, just because that's that really represents what that band was. Yeah, and it's a really good example of how just I mean we didn't have that, but like money, and I could imagine it in the form of a label coming in can really help, but can also mm-hmm. be a conflict of interest sometimes to the art. Of course, it's not to be anti-money. We need these things to mm-hmm. make them, make it happen, and there could be a good marriage, but mm-hmm. you know it's got to be orchestrated. Um, in a particular way and I think the art has to be completely put first and money when it comes in is like oil and just gets not that it's bad you know making money like the first boss I had after college was like uh, t- kind of schooled me on his theory of, of success and it was money you know making being successful monetarily is just a result of providing beautiful service and I was like okay that's good get caught up in this kind of anti-corporate, anti-money ethics sometimes uh-huh. as an artist. And it's not implicitly bad. It just has to be uh-huh. balanced correctly. Yeah. You went to Stanford. Yeah. What would you study? I started in physics and then slowly eroded because I was, I was really into theater. That's how I started singing. I, did, I got to do a bunch of theater in high school when I couldn't be in any shows because I, like, I was playing soccer pretty seriously uh-huh. at the time. We got to college, and uh, I was too small to play, and it was just time to, like, move on. Because it was a Division One school, and I was a sweeper. It was not the right stature, you yeah. know? But that was, a, that was a cool... I started DJing, a hip-hop DJ at the time, and I was, like, the only one on campus. Made way more money than I do what now. What kind of stuff were you playing? I was, like, of any era of music, I am the most knowledgeable about that one. Really? I was obsessed. Like, right, when, right after Napster came out, like, late 90s... Early two thousands hip hop. Like the list is is so extensive. I mean, like 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 the Black Star era, uh-huh. like that like that record uh-huh. and the ilk around there. Uh-huh. There's so much that uh-huh. I can't even like come in. But that's the <laughs> that's the time that I'm I was obsessed with. Uh-huh. Um, what year was that? Two thousand. What year was Black Star? I was in high school. Yeah. But that was right when I started like listening to it. It was the first music that like caught my ear and like mm-hmm. really inspired me and I hate to be the like typical 21st century white young male but like yeah, I loved it you know yeah I really did yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So got to college was like the only DJ on campus and <laughs> just threw myself into it and all of a sudden was the guy and then I wanted to do shows so I got into West Side Story and I had to sing and that's how I started singing who did um, you what what character did you I play? was just a jet I was a nobody huh. and I was around all these jet? yeah one of the jets yeah. You know, and I had to sing and dance or whatever. And I was like, what am I doing? And there were other singers there. I mean, they were amazing. And I, did, I didn't sing. Like, I just auditioned. And they were like, okay, well, you know, try to sing. Yeah. So, anyway, so I, I started in, like, physics and mechanical engineering. And then, but the, the what, theater. What drew you to that? Um, I was just advanced in math and science, I guess. And it just seemed mm-hmm. like the, I enjoyed it, I guess. And my my mom was an English teacher and my dad was a creative writing major although 
his profession is different now. So I guess they were like rooting. F- I think it was a parent pleaser a lot, and they were rooting for the like sciences, you know, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. I mean, in retrospect, it could have been kind of cool to do that. I just switched to philosophy because I wanted to. I, I was extremely passionate about it and uh, it just appealed to my way of thinking a lot and I wanted to also be able to study a variety of other things. So You switched to philosophy? I ended up in philosophy. Holy and shit. I, I basically double majored in theater. I don't have a degree in it, but I was yeah. just playing. As soon as I did that show, mm-hmm. I was in, like my voice came out of nowhere, got back the next year, and I was in every show <laughs> until the end of school. I was like became the leading guy on campus for a lot of the stuff. Started writing songs. Of course, those were like horrible. So instead of like my senior thesis, I like basically produced this like EP that I have. that's kind of secret, you know. Uh-huh. Which I mean, I guess I'll play for you sometime. I don't want to though. Um, but uh, so I ended up there, and then I worked in like uh, internet startup companies with another band member at the time. Uh-huh. The first band I was in called the Animal Underground, which was also a really good band. Um, yeah, that's that's the basic. Backline, yeah. That was an interesting place to go to school. You know, I think it's probably different now. There were some really beautiful elements of that. Like, the, I really miss the intense academic environment. Breeds this wonderful sharing and challenging of ideas at the same time that's wonderfully curated in a bubble like that and horribly yeah. ridiculous in a bubble like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, going back to play music there was a little weird at different times. You missed the math and science? I, I do. I mean, that would have been fun to do. Now, just what as a about side it do you thing. miss? Um, I don't know. Um, I suppose I love indulging in the um, freedom and um, unpredictability of creativity, but there's something beautiful to Oh, unlike the music industry, huh? Yeah, there's something beautiful <laughs> and reliable to, to, to equations. And yeah. There's yeah, also yeah. something beautiful in bringing in artistic uh, in, an innovative I think innovation comes from this is the, is the essence of the spirit of art and it's like the artist is always shedding his skin and pushing to the new place anytime you become stagnant the music is stagnant and the beautiful thing about being an artist is that you you're, you signed up for that so if you're stagnant in your personal life your art suffers if you're stagnant in your art your personal life suffers so that's very beautiful <clears throat> but also it can be just insane there's something nice about it equations and rigidity mm-hmm. and um, you know I try to bring some of that in for reliability into the art and into the process but the business of being a musician is pretty crazy yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's 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 kind of sad but you know the whole era of like becoming rich playing music that was the anomaly in the history of humanity you know from what like 1940 50 right. till you know right. now it's all falling apart Right. But that was the weird time when you could be rich doing yes, it. You know, it was never like yeah. that ever yeah. before. Yeah. So, although I wish Spotify I would play me the, more the, money, the invention of the phonograph record uh, is one thing that that uh, that made that happen because yeah. you had a you had a product you could sell, and not not just you know people didn't have to go to go see you. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they did. Uh, you know, they did go see you, but you, you had you had a product you could sell in the stores, and they could never. It didn't matter. It didn't matter if they never saw you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, but that was uh, that was more in the. Uh, I mean, that, that happened in, in the around World War One. Yeah, some of those are the coolest. The old, my favorite era is that the old like Delta Blues wire recordings. Oh yeah, those are just. Yeah, I don't know. Love that old lo-fi. Yeah, 
Not, not that I mean, it's not. Yeah. Now it's like a fad to do it lo-fi or whatever. Or I mean, I still like it now. It's just something magical about the. No, this is what it is. It's not the like quality of recording. It's the the lack of awareness of what the recording means. Like uh-huh. it's like a photo now. Any time uh-huh. anyone's taking a photo now, yeah. you know how you know what it means. You know it's going to be around forever. You know how much it's going to be part of this. Mm-hmm persona that's you're, you're kind of responsible for cultivating mm-hmm. so there's like some implicit not necessarily dishonesty but like distance and lack of presence like it's thought about and that's what i think we fight in recording too because now we know you know but back then it's almost like i don't know what this is i'm just gonna mm-hmm. play and you're gonna go i don't know i've never i don't somebody's know what that gonna, is somebody's gonna hand me 10 bucks yeah so it's the most yeah. real right there you yeah. know there's some there's no there's no notion of itself or something and imagine all the uh, all all the great art that was lost because a lot of musicians thought, well, if if I do this, they won't come out and see me, and I'll lose all that money. Yeah, I can't just I can't just put this down here and let people let people hear it because they won't come see me anymore. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, you know, Buddy Bolden, you know, it was never recorded. You know, it was supposedly, it was supposedly one of the great trumpet players of all time from New Orleans, and. But nobody can verify that. That's fascinating. <laughs> you know. Well, that's kind of. But those. The, I mean, that is sad. But there's also an element of that, the mythology there that is wonderful. That's so dead now. Yeah. In some ways, we can yeah. cultivate all these things. But like, you're so expected to reveal constantly all these things because that's what the mechanism is publicly. Mm-hmm. That like, it's like the mystery is dead. Yeah. Like one, the mechanism is different, so no band will be like the Beatles necessarily or it'll be different, but like the whole mystique that could be created ar- around that because there was yeah. less access yeah. and less expectation, it was more conducive to artistic engagement. You could make the 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 greatest piece of music that has ever been written and release it and people recognize it as the greatest piece of music ever recorded and they would come back to you next year and say, What are you doing next? Yeah. And you're expected to either equal it or be better. Yeah. What's that do to you? Well, uh, yeah. How do you deal with that? That's part of the modern pace, though. Faster ahead doesn't necessarily mean better or or higher up. But do you feel like do you ever ever feel like you have to compete with yourself? Yeah, but I think is I think it's the artist's job, in particularly in that regard, to to be the leaders of the pace. You know, like, for instance, if I get all caught up in all the booking stuff or whatever and all the mechanical business stuff in music, like, that's not a very conducive space for art to happen. It's also when I'm not being very present. And it's easy to get sucked into that because that's what the industry is and that's what sort of the the epicenter of capitalism necessitates, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we know that the moments that are most valuable to us are when we slow down and are present to enjoy one another and that's why we love music pieces of art you know remind us of this beautiful essence we're constantly rushing through faster and faster so I personally I do feel that but I believe it's my responsibility and art's responsibility and role to check in yeah. uh, into that yeah. present moment and I think that it's really wonderful how actually powerful the aesthetic is mm-hmm. how, how incredibly powerful it is um, to affect consciousness and affect people on a subconscious level as well. Mm-hmm. It's more powerful. And it can be, you know, art can be categorized or qualified as fluffy and, and, and not as um, heavy in its meaning, but I think it's the greatest expression of our 
of the multiple sides of our uh, of the marriage of the multiple sides of our humanity. Mm-hmm. I think it is the most powerful expression. <laughs> so when you were wrapping up with Naya, okay, mm-hmm. did you feel your music changing? Um, yeah, I think you know for me that was like the first, the second band I had, first time I made a record. All those other guys had done way more music than I had. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really interesting, actually. We had a painter do the first record, um, which has become a theme of mine, actually, for the records I've done. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but other than that, I like it. Um, and she painted this. She was late to get the painting in, and she painted it the last night or something, and she <laughs> said that she'd painted it upside down and sw- flipped it over, and I saw this <laughs> painting, which is missing, by the way. Someone has stolen this painting. Oh, man. And it's like four characters, and the top is like how they appear. This is what my read on it. The top is how they appear in the outside world. The bottom is what was actually going on. And for me, the immediate image was like, oh, this is like the band, and I'm the lead singer in the front with like the head looks bigger, and these yeah. other guys are there. But on the bottom of the painting, it's these other dudes holding me over the fire. <laughs> and that's what it was. It's not, yeah. not by their fault, and I'm yeah. grateful for it, but it was a certainly a huge learning experience in not trying to over-control the art and not trying to like... Um, be afraid or rush things to like mm-hmm. you know that there's a to, to listen to the, the garden underneath you know because there's so much pressure to like move fast and like do it all yourself now and like book shows and get out there and everyone's telling you what to do this someone's writing books but then the people writing books are probably doing that because that's their other way of making money too yeah. but they yeah. have good advice but also that's their business yeah. so like yeah. it's like was this, it's a complete shit show, which, if you sort it out well, could be very powerful, but usually is horribly confusing and distracting from making music. So at the end of that, I was moving. I had written a lot of music that wasn't appropriate for that band, and the first record we did really were kind of like all my songs. Mm-hmm. The second one, we co-wrote them, which, which is why which, it's... Which way were you moving? Which way? Yeah. I don't know. I guess more folk because I mm-hmm. I loved hip hop music, but I love songwriters like Amos Lee and mm-hmm. Mark Broussard, early Jason Mraz stuff. Mm-hmm. Like the old recordings with sat with uh, with the hand drummer Toka Rivera. Were like mm-hmm. when I was in college. Other than hip hop, and when I started singing, that I was obsessed with that. There was some really magical stuff there. So the singer songwriter thing appealed to me but also I hadn't been writing for that long so during Naya I'd been writing a bunch of my own stuff and playing on the street a bunch really and so by the time yeah with this bucket drummer in Portland Phil Bonnie in Portland yeah where and would that, you play uh, we'd play Saturday Market mm-hmm. Nordstrom's Corner um, under the awning at the at the Pioneer Square Mall mm-hmm. and then late nights outside of Voodoo Donuts what did that teach you that was the most that, Naya was incredible but that was the most that was the most fascinating Experience street performances. Um, I have the utmost respect for anybody who does it, and just the role it plays in beautifying the city, and I think in slowing that pace down as people are running around, and it's kind of in this in the center of of the sky, or like you're going through a bubble of someone's sound. So it's a mm-hmm. wonderful microcosm of what it is to be a musician in the world, <laughs> and how utterly meaningless it is, but how inherently powerful it is and beautiful, and it's enough to just do that. Um, I mean, it was really, it was an interesting. That took me on a lot of journeys, and eventually over to Europe, and then through there, I got an agent there. It led me a lot of places. Did you busk in many Europe stories. also? Oh yeah, our wow. first tour was busking all over there. Just wow, going on around. Wow. Um, me and Phil there are a Bondi. bunch of guys here in town 
I mean, Shoehorn did that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little different now. It's not the same. But there was that era when that was like Andrew Gorney. Uh -huh. He was here, and they were uh -huh. like, he'd run into all the same guys. A lot of them were still doing it, but there was a window there where it was really, it felt really uh, eye to eye with the Portland uh -huh. populace. Mm hmm. So yeah, I did a bunch of that, and I had a bunch of songs from that and from Traveling with Naya that were like cocked and ready. I mean, I had like the heart of what were three albums, basically, mm -hmm. which the one I just gave you is the third. It's mm -hmm. literally taken me that long to just finish them and record them. But wow. I had the start of this thing, and that's why it's kind of insane, because kind of, I didn't realize how long this was going to take and how big of a project it was, yeah. but I was like, oh, there's three records here. I'm making a trilogy. These clearly don't fit together, so that's mm -hmm. what I've just come to the end of now. Yeah, right when the band ended in 2011, by the fall, I was raising a Kickstarter. I'd already been playing on the street. The drummer from the band, who had kind of helped produce our last record, I brought him along, and he basically produced my first record with me. So I jumped right off and right into it, and that was really my first record, and it was called Six Foot Soul, and was a complete art piece. It's a 24-track record with... Mm -hmm. 12 songs and interlude pieces. There were all these like weird like, kind of noise music pieces. Uh -huh. And then I would was recording my grandparents at the time and, and asking people to send voice messages to me, which I turned into these like into poetry, into a script. And this was the intersection. This became the intersection of my theater background uh -huh. with like poetry, literature, and art, and philosophy, and music all in one. What did your, what did your grandparents say? Uh, I, was just, I would just interview them and yeah. ask them questions about life and uh -huh. love and and then they became almost like a Greek chorus on it. Yeah. And then I put out a question to all my friends and fans, what does the word worth mean to you? And the whole theme of this first record of Six Foot Soul was like leaving home to go on this journey to kind of find oneself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew there were no love songs on it. I knew the second record, which is called Two, would be all about romance, all about mm -hmm. the other. And the question for the second record became, send me a message to a lover and say their name. Mm -hmm. And I created poetry differently now. I didn't, I didn't chop it as much. Mm -hmm. I tried to let people talk in their own rhythm, but I put people that didn't know each other speaking to one another. That was also a 24-track record. They're both written as plays. It's actually like the script and the interlude pieces, like the, the words of other people are the script, mm -hmm. and I speak through other people's voices. So I'm still really discovering this concept, but I was just following, you know, passion and the, the weird psychedelic noise pieces. Like, mm -hmm. I, like the, I like bands like the books, like weird. Mm -hmm. I like nice songs I like tight stuff and I like totally what some people call would call indulgent I don't think it is uh, just art just art for art so just a feeling mm -hmm. not a not a composition almost just we just want to create a vibe here between these two songs so I just finished this third one and it's a, a slight compromise it's just how it evolved uh, Steve Berlin was producing it and mm -hmm. we ended up having to remix the record and so this this third one of the trilogy called Pardon Me is uh, an abridged version first. The, the extended one will come later, just because it seems like some people got it, others didn't. Mm -hmm. This one just ended up evolving this way, so it's just the songs this time. And I'll follow up with the extended version. The question for this record is, send me a message to the creator, whatever mm -hmm. that means for you, and mm -hmm. propose your answer yourself. So, yeah, for me it's become, the first record was... You know, everybody's first record is a really interesting experience because you're really mm -hmm. facing yourself, and it's going to define you as an artist mm -hmm. for for a while. And the second one will make the vector because then you got two points, right? Mm -hmm. And the third one, I've heard a lot of people say, this is where you kind of arrive because then it's really like mm -hmm. you can really define where you've landed. And I, I feel like that's happened uh, with this record for me in a lot of ways. It's not 
perfect in some ways. Not that, I don't know, maybe that's not the goal. I don't know. But it does, I feel like it's like grounded and representative of like what I can do. It's, you know, there's very little editing. I don't use pitch correction on any of them. Mm-hmm. It's almost all one take. You know? so it's not possible to make a perfect piece, no, it's of, not art, about piece that. of art. It's impossible. But there are elements. Because you have to yeah. stop. At some point, you have to stop. Well, the, the notion of perfection yeah. is the question. What, 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 right. what is a perfect record? That's not the question. What, what's the most beautiful? What's the most powerful? Or yeah. what's the most honest? Uh-huh. So a perfect record might be the most imperfect, the most honest. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just, it's really, what, what is the goal there? So that's the basic story. After Naya, I had a huge backlog of songs. Yeah. Hopped into my first record. It's thematically a lot about street performing. There's a lot mm-hmm. of bucket drums on it. Yeah. It's a story of traveling around, playing on the street, and finding oneself through it. The second one, too, is all about the relationship with the other romantically and like the tragedy of love. And this third one is about transcendence beyond the paradigm. Um, yeah, I kind of have the next one on the way, too. I think that fourth record will just be self-titled and be called Worth. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I've become obsessed with... Yeah, I think we all have to, like... You can't in, indulge in, like, uh, weaknesses or vague approximations of what you want to do, but you should absolutely indulge in uh, the weird idiosyncrasies that define uh, different elements that may feel unsafe because they aren't common to other people. Mm-hmm. And for me, that beca- I, don't, I wasn't planning on making a 24-track record. It just... <laughs> Flew, it flowed together. Like, I had all these voicemails from a mechanic who was our mechanic who put the air horn on, right? Yeah. So I make this one piece, just kind of messing around on this weird lick that was layered on top of it, and I put all of his voicemails in that he <laughs> sent me. I was like, I just want to put all of his in. Let's just go with this. I'm like, just, I'm just feeling in the dark here. Yeah. Yeah. And I put all of his voicemails in starting at the beginning to begin chopping them up and editing them with no plan, mm-hmm. no attachment to how this is going to end up, which I think is a really interesting way to create. Yeah. And as I listened to all of the voices together, it sounded like this din of people talking over each other. And I was like, I let it play. And the two that lasted the longest, it gives me goosebumps, actually. It's like, this is where you, I feel like you meet the creator, like the, the, the spiritual force meets you and like almost touches you like, right. as an artist. As people, we are all artists. But you're kind of dancing with this. So the second to last, the second longest message was him goofing off and telling some crazy story about having sex with somebody in the Chuck E. Cheese head in, the, in his car in the parking lot of Chuck E. Cheese. And the one that lasted the longest, after all the din was done, and after the last joke was said, was him being like, I'm afraid I have cancer and I don't want to wow. leave this world without my friend. Mm-hmm. And like all the music died, the last message says it, and it's just his voice alone. Hmm. And then there's a little bit of him crying and he hangs up. Wow. And I have no hand in that mm-hmm. other than noticing it. Mm-hmm. And so that was how that was. I'm like, well, that I'm, I'm having a huge feeling here. Was that a, just a coincidence about how it, was it a ended? coincidence. You know, people don't understand that. <laughs> people just don't understand how much coincidence plays in making, in making art, no matter what, the, what your field is. Well, that's the, that's the best part. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that is the best part. That's, that's, that's almost why you do That's when you know it's not just you. Yeah. Whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah. That may not necessarily be comforting or solve anything, but there's something else underneath, yeah. you know, that's, that's meeting you halfway or just a little more, I think, when you put in the work. Yeah, and but, then that feeling is like, yeah. helps it make all make sense. Oh, you yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And yeah. that feeling in art, when you're feeling that as an mm-hmm. artist with mm-hmm. the art, 
that's the feeling other people are going to feel, and they're going to feel that with your art. Yeah, that's the that's the beauty right there. Yeah, it's the, it's it's like it's it's like this is something you spun out, and 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 and, it, and you, you just let it happen. It's it, you, it's you, you're not in control of it. Yeah, that's you when know? new stuff happens. If you have a yeah an attachment to an outcome of the piece of art. It will limit it based on what is known already. It'll right. be logical. It'll right. be like logically necessitated yeah. or something yeah. obvious. And if you yeah. start and go into yeah. the unknown and discover something in the piece, that's what it is. Because then, as an artist, you are literally growing as you discover it. Yeah. And then we, we all share in this. And then we're all together on this forefront of consciousness, moving mm-hmm. ahead, mm-hmm. growing into new understanding. Mm-hmm. There, I don't yeah. think it's really very important because I don't think violence exists in that place. Uh-huh. I don't think hatred or any yeah. of these. Yeah any of that pain and heaviness they, they can't exist there mm-hmm. they would be irrelevant they would just slough off mm-hmm. in, amidst mm-hmm. the the just the sheer purity of the beauty mm-hmm. and I'm a really firm believer in just like with all the crazy shit going on out there that like just the power of the aesthetic yeah. just the power of, of yeah. something beautiful right. and something simple can dissolve so much of that right like I had, I, mean, I wouldn't say it's a theory but if like if for one day everybody on the same day only went out and like uplifted one another and like and just was like I'm just gonna pick every and not not falsely yeah. like based on truly what they saw as other each other's worth or beauty and just like did that like the energetic shift that would be felt would be I mean we might not even go back just from that simple act of each person doing that I don't know speaking of which yeah and I've talked to a lot of people about this in the past year who've come and sat in here is how is the state of the nation and the world affecting your work? Um, you know, I mean, I think it's really important and we can't, like, not engage in the political dialogue, but also I don't think the political dialogue is going to solve much of the political issues. In my personal realm... And this is just my personal way of attacking it. I really believe these all these things are coming out of like deeper spiritual issues and consciousness. And so my I want to approach those in my artistry because I don't think that argumentation solves it. Because it, you, you can have a logical argument. What's going to change is if you start feeling different. So if I can create the way I approach it is if I can create a different feeling in people's hearts through my music and open up, and in particular in my music and my performance, make them cry. Like yeah. If I can bring out. Yeah. and make them feel again to feel the sadness to feel these things to feel the love they have that everybody has for somebody else mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then all of the logical arguments they're run by those things so mm-hmm. for me it's it's not that it's irrelevant I just think there's different ways to attack it and everyone's gotta gotta go with their inspiration and, and lead their way to, mm-hmm. to, to fight for what they believe is right but I I mean, it's definitely a mess out there, and there's a lot of sadness, and it's there's something beautiful about it because it feels like it's kind of visible now. Like yeah. Yeah. these undercurrents that are have been there for a while are more visible. You know, I don't think I don't think, for instance, like the Me Too movement would have gained as much um, strength and publicity without the context of our leadership currently. And I think that that's one notion in which. There's a lot of power in its ability to galvanize, bring together people, and to I think that the ugliness needs to be seen to be addressed. Yeah. You know, and so yeah. there is, it's it's ugly. 
mm-hmm. but it's like that you can st- it's much there are pieces that are more visible now yeah um, you know it's, I, was, I was thinking that I was wonder I wonder what those, those those kids those high school kids in Florida I wonder what music they listen to I mean I wonder what's what's comforting them musically I mean I don't know the answer to that but uh, well it's interesting I mean because the the pop music machine, at least in my perception, seems so, so more, so much more corrupted and different than it's ever. Oh been. yes, and then it's totally it's, it's the opposite of of, of yeah. healing and, and soothing. And but, I, but people are smart, you know. Amidst all yeah. that stupidity and silliness, I actually mm-hmm. believe that people aren't dumb at all. And people really, deep down, you know, they're in, they have they have an intuition, they have a cultivated intelligence, and although they may participate in some silly dialogue on the surface, like, yeah, people aren't dumb and. They, they find they find the good music. They, yeah. Eventually, they find the the truth inside of themselves. You know, yeah. so we're in a time of a lot of things getting thrown up in the air, and the uh, the role of the United States in the world, the perceived role being questioned, but also reflecting on the very essence of that role having been different. You know, the origins of this country mm-hmm. versus the native people as well. It yeah. wasn't a perfect situation at all. It was right. rather ugly right. itself. Yes, <laughs> you know. So it's. Um, I think it's a really interesting time. I think like when the, the, with the invention of the internet, all the cards on the table just got flung into the air, right? And everyone is still scrambling to figure out how this is going to go and trying to cr- grab onto some different themes. But it hasn't settled and isn't even close to settling how the information will be organized, how it will be vetted. Because, but for the first time, there's this wonderful visibility of everything, and the, this initial iteration of it is these memes that explode and go away, like this viral culture of everything being so quick and gone. Right. But that's not how it's going to end up. Yeah. When, when the dust settles, there, it's not going to be like this. So I think we have to acknowledge we're in a, you know, every, the table has got to return mm-hmm. in, 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 the his, in the history of speed of knowledge, like yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a while for it to settle on what's going what's to be there. And I think in particular in terms of Across religion and in, in the in the history of, of spiritual knowledge, I think mm-hmm. that that's going to be an extremely powerful uh, uniting force in the long run mm-hmm. to being able to actually understand the the elements that uh, bring us together and that are in common. Um, have you found that coming out of you in in, in your writing in the past year? Um, and, yeah. Any, any kind of you know, reaction? Yeah, I to don't or, write political. I don't write. Well, no, I'm not uh, talking about political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm talking about what's going on yeah. within us. Absolutely. You know? You can't not. It's an illusion that it's not right. all connected. Right. Like you, right. You can't not feel it. Right. Like, well, you're in it. Like, yeah. you, we're all yeah. in this together. We, you, yeah. you know, you can't not feel it. So, and there's some beauty in that, you know? Maybe, maybe you're not personally depressed you're absorbing this other energy that's all around you you're not alone in this mm-hmm. There's a, there is a deep sadness in the way people treat each other yeah um yeah i sense it coming out in the writing you know it's coming through i view i view the my met my favorite metaphor for writing is like uh you get a you get a doorbell ring at the door mm-hmm. and you're like oh who's here and you go to the door and it's this box and you know and they're all different shapes but they come from this one sender and you're like cool so you take it into your box excavation room and it's a mess in there got a bunch of other boxes being taken out it's just messy but this is the place where you, where you begin the work you pull it out and it's this thing of mud so then you take it you're like oh let's keep I got some more time let's take it in my next room which is like phase two projects that are kind of in the middle and you start 
cleaning it off. And you have these tools you've used, maybe you're innovating some new ones, cleaning it down to a certain place where the mess is gone and there's like some shape to it. Take it into the third room. That's when you get much more precise. It's less messy here. It's more refined. And you reach this point in this third room where you're not sure if you're carving out or uncovering. Mm -hmm. And there's this beautiful place of like, am I shaping this? Mm -hmm. Or am I discovering the form that is underneath? Right. And that point of that fingertip of yours on this thing and it pushing you back is that connection with the creator, mm -hmm. in my opinion. And then you take it into these other rooms. You've got some of those showrooms. Maybe they're, I call them your, your albums or whatever, where these yeah. pieces are set on pedestals together. Maybe you've got some that aren't open yet and there's some missing spaces. And that new thing that just came to the door fits right in that perfect space for this new showroom we're going to use. Mm hmm so for me, that, that's how I think about it. And in that regard, when you know, the, the, the postal service of these creative <laughs> inspirations and packages is tied to what's happening out there, and, and I'm tied to it, and I'm tapped mm -hmm. in, and we meet in the middle mm -hmm. from where I feel to what... But also, it's not just some logical argument. I don't... Uh, uh, and not necessarily some... Yeah, it, it has to meet with this other inspiration. Um, Otherwise, it's kind of dead. Mm -hmm. So uh, very didactic songwriting mm -hmm. is kind of dead because it's too much. Yeah. Even though it's written to be helpful mm -hmm. and that intention I can respect, it can yeah. be too, it's too much about the person writing it. Right. It's too much, in, it's trend, entrenched in yeah. uh, a thought process. And that's not going to engage or melt someone else's thought process. It's just going to battle it. Yeah. Um, I think there's a deep value of like, explicitly political music I don't personally write that because I feel that it only preaches to the choir sometimes I think it's important to do but uh, my approach to the problem is like I said earlier I want to hit it yeah. underneath yeah. and try to change yeah. how someone feels make them feel and that's just my mm -hmm. personal artistic mm -hmm. approach mm -hmm. I think everyone's got to get their other own way yeah. so you still get funky? yeah <laughs> I don't know what that means <laughs> funky sometimes funky, I'm getting funky. more folky uh, but well, don't, don't don't you ever just want to funk it out? I do. I do sometimes. I I'm been, I think I need to do that more. Actually, I've been folking it. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been in a folk. <laughs> <laughs> folking it. I, I, I like sad songs. I like melancholy yeah. Yeah. songs because it gets it out, and then I feel like all this happiness comes after. Yeah. Um, I really like funky stuff, and I like singing on it because it comes out of gospel. It's yeah, that's it. It's true. That is it. That, that gospel that. just means the good word too. From that perspective, yeah. although I, the religious right. tradition, in right. addition, I love uh, just gospel meaning the good word, uh -huh. and and just having a slight separation in cases uh -huh. from uh, yeah. explicitly religious yeah. tradition yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah, because Nia was funky. Nia was funky. It was funky. Nia was heavy too. Yeah, and funky. Yeah. Right. The band, when I play with the band, it's pretty funky. All right, good. I'm still trying to explore yeah. the marriage between funking it out and having a moving dance party uh -huh. and this other side that I feel more deeply attached to, like this right. really melancholy, like Bonnie Vare, um, yeah. poetic, kind of dark and sad and lonely. Like, if I were going to listen to one thing, it's like, it's, it's just a person singing and playing the guitar or piano. Something about the naked song with the songwriter. Uh -huh. Like... The music you play when somebody dies, or some moment right. you need understanding. Right. I, I don't think those are diametrically opposed things. Mm -hmm. I just, mm -hmm. I mean, as far as what you just asked, I do like to get funky. I'm, I'm exploring how to marry, how to marry, getting funky with like 
yeah. cry with this other crying, um, sad, yeah. connective yeah. thing that seems equally or more important. Yeah. And how do those go together? Because there's a lot of, I mean, there's a value to the party, but there's a lot of party going on and, yeah. and funkiness going right. on. And I think that's important, but I think it's important to have like that uh, sacred space, you know? Like if you look at all the top 40 stuff, like how much of those songs are really like heartbreaking versus just kind of partying and right. hearted. It's right. not one is right or the other is yeah. right, you know? Yeah. Anyway, funky, funk is good. <laughs> All right. I'm thinking of Steve Swatkins. Yeah, he wants go. me to say funk. There you go. There you I go. like funk. Yeah. Steve. Okay. Um, I'd like to go out on one of these tunes yeah, from, sure. pardon me, which which one do you think I should go out on? Well, so let's see here. So we've, we've, there's the business perspective, which is you should play the one that's like the single. <laughs> then there's the like, what's my favorite one right now, based on what I just said to you about playing the sadder ones. And then there's like some middle ground of like conversation we've covered Okay. You're going to go out on a full one here? Yeah. Let's see here. Get, do you have any... Give me one word about how you're feeling right now. Uh, uh, That's good enough right there. Um, well, I could, we could do the... Why don't we do the, um, the title track? I think it's cool. Okay. Either a title track or the secret track. Secret track? The sec- okay, I think we should do the secret track. Actually, this is perfect. So I, I suggest if you're out there, please do <laughs> listen to the track, Pardon Me. Uh-huh. It's the title track. I wanted to show you that. But Where is I think the secret track? The secret track is not listed on there because it's secret. Uh, it's secret. It's but secret. Yeah, it's, yeah. I want this one because this is more personal and intimate. It's the one after Fallen intimate Leaves. right now. Yeah. Um, okay. What's called, it called? It's called Spring Is Here. Okay. And this is, we had this recording session for this record, uh-huh. and we had we moved everyone to that house before it got remodeled that oh, you went to. Yeah. And cut a hole in the wall, and it was before Howard <laughs> Halls was started. Justin brought all his gear from Cloud City to the house. Oh, we had a two-week lockdown. And I flew in these musicians, and we had five days for basics. We built up the stuff one day, built the studio, and we had two days of recording and got nothing. Oh. And, and meanwhile, there's a video crew there. I'm waking up in the morning, like, raising money on Kickstarter, like, hustling this thing yeah. to happen because I want to yeah. do it. And I'm, like, freaking out. Like, I know there's one video where we're in the park on, the, on like, the f- second day at night, and, the, and I'm just like, I don't, like... If this doesn't, like, happen, like, I don't have a month. I haven't even raised the money to lose doing now. Uh-huh. And it was, I was trying to make it a dry session to, like, have it be, like, um, more spiritual or whatever. Yeah. And, like, you know, like, not let it turn into a, a shit show. <laughs> and um, that night, we just all went out. We had an engineer at night, too. We all went out and got wine and, like, ate some mushrooms yeah. or something. <laughs> and we're up all night making weird jam music because I wanted to capture some stuff at the interlude as well uh-huh. from just, yeah. like, pieces that happened. Yeah. And in the morning, the producer and engineer get back, and all of us have been up all night. And we're wearing sunglasses, and they come in, they're like, whoa, what happens here? And, and we're like, we're ready to track. And so this, this song is one take from the morning after the night oh, that unlocked the record. It's a very simple song. Yeah. It was probably the first or second time anyone played it. It's just a vibe, and it's just about the lyrics and the feeling, but this is the feeling... That unlocked the record. Pardon me is really the title track and essence yeah. of it, the first song. This song is the secret one that kind of unlocked it. It's one take, no metronome, we're all in a room together, mm-hmm. and it's just this morning, we're ready to track. And we tracked all 17 basic tracks the next two days. The drummer flew out, and, and we had the heart of the record after that. So I'd like to share that energy of opening and inspiration more than what I think is 
necessarily the best song or composition. <laughs> okay, and it's track 11 on there. It's on Got Spotify, it. too, if you want to find it. But it's called Spring is Here. Okay. Thank you so much for, for spending this time. It's been terrific. Sure. It's been Thank great you. to see you. It's good to see you again, too. All righty. Oh, yeah, yeah. See them through. 